Hello, and thank you for tuning in. I am Anna Miljacki, Professor of Architecture at MIT and Director of the Critical Broadcasting Lab. And on behalf of the Architectural League of New York and the Critical Broadcasting Lab, I welcome you to our architecture podcast series titled, I Would Prefer Not To. I Would Prefer Not To is an oral history project conducted through audio interviews on the topic of perhaps the most important kind of refusal in architects' toolboxes, refusal of the Architectural Commission. By definition, the topic of refusal stays hidden from public scrutiny and thus also hidden from history. Withdrawals of this kind tend not to leave paper trails and are not easy to examine or learn from. And yet, the lessons contained in architects' deliberations about and decisions not to engage are politically relevant and urgent. Decisions to not engage a commission or types of commissions or commissions with certain characteristics inevitably forfeit potential profit, placing other values above it, at least momentarily. My guest in this episode is Andres Hake. Hello, Anna. <laughs> Hi. Andres Hake founded the Madrid, New York-based Office for Political Innovation, that I will call Of Pollen, in 2003, and through it intervenes on many different registers or through what we might recognize as many different media, exhibitions, writing, films, performances, and buildings. He is Dean of Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation. His work has been exhibited in many globally important venues over the last decade and a half and has received numerous awards. Among them, the Office for Political Innovation has awor was awarded with a Silver Lion for the best project in the Mondo Italia section at the 14th Venice Biennale in 2014. In 2016, the office received the Frederick Kiesler Prize for the Architecture and the Arts from the city of Vienna. In 2018, Hake co-curated Manifesta 12 in Palermo. In 2019, he was the chief curator of the 13th Shanghai Biennial, and his important project exploring the global human and environmental costs of super shiny architecture was included in this year's Venice Biennale. Hake's book, Superpowers of Scale, was published by Columbia Books on Architecture in the City in 2020. At the beginning of 2023, of Pollen's largest work yet, the Reggio School opened to the public and to its kids in the Madrid suburb of Encinar de los Reyes. It has already been called surreal, extraordinary, and the most innovative school around. As usual, I hope that we will be able to discuss some of the key aspects of Off Pollen's body of work by talking first about the work that is not on the boards in the office or in its portfolio. So, as I've told you, I've been starting these conversations with my interlocutor's most memorable decisions to not engage or to drop the commission. And so let's start with the same question for you. Uh, or if you have not walked out of a commission or decided not to take on a project yet, can you imagine it happening and on what grounds? Yeah, that's a very good question. And a question that I think we all face every day. I must say that on the one hand, there's invitations to be part of process, processes of uh, commissions that we have decided not to, to be part of. Mm -hmm. uh, and mostly it was cases in which architecture was called to, to basically hide the way power was being managed in a particular situation and architecture was called somehow to 
to provide a delusional image of progressiveness uh, to governments or to companies that were actually doing the opposite. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and for and that we've done often in initial moments, like the, when basically we get the first invitation to be considered, mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. we basically, and that we, we've said, well, we're busy, we don't want to do it, we don't feel that we fit in that uh, mm-hmm. project ultimately. And, and that's something that we've done many times, many, many mm-hmm. times. Uh, and we do almost automatically uh, when we feel that that there's really no possibility that we can contribute to improve the situation uh, these commissions come as part of. Mm-hmm. And also that we're, we were expected actually to be hiding it and, and, and allowing it to continue. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the easy, I must say. That's easy. Mm-hmm. It comes with a label like, oh, we have this awful government, just do <laughs> this amazing museum of art, contribute to this kind of big competition to do a museum with a school of art with this and, and that. And, uh, but I must say that's the easy because it's uh, quite obvious that, uh, that, that basically we should not be there. What I think that it's a little bit more difficult, it's other kinds of refusals, which have to do with uh, how you want to practice. What are the the dynamics you you commit to? It has to do with conditions, with uh, time, uh, with um, what is the end result that is expected with how much you can really decide or contribute to, to, to discuss and to redefine and what is already defined. Mm-hmm. And for me, those are the difficult ones because you believe that you can do a lot and then you find yourself in a situation that you, everything's already decided and mm-hmm. wrongly decided and you're there just to give a little bit of style to everything, let's say, a style mm-hmm. that looks progressive and that could be sold as politically, uh, uh, I don't know, critical. And and those are a little bit more difficult because it requires to have a, a methodology, I would say, or a way to interrogate in commissions and opportunities that allows you to perceive what's going on. But I think that the problem with that is that that includes maybe 99% percent of architectural commissions when we see buildings they're mostly designed so architects are there not to to contribute to define them materially programmatically but just to to give a, a a little bit of shine to them that makes them be what they are already meant to be but just kind of render them a little bit cooler or a little bit more pleasant uh, to uh, to to our audiences and and that's what I think it's more difficult to do. I think architecture now it's in the mechanical systems, it's in the societal relationships that architecture produces, it's in the way that that architecture enacts larger systems of relationship that operate across scales. 
Hmm. It's in the way the detail of how molecules are uh, managed uh, and, and are entangled with life um, happen. And, and those are specifically the areas where politics are still possible. And precisely because those are the areas where politics are still possible are the ones that are predefined or many, many people uh-huh. try to predefine so that architects don't mess around uh, with them. So that's for me where the difficulty comes. I mean, I'll go, I'll go there more specifically in a variety of different ways as we go, but maybe something as you respond to these first things about what's easy, what's hard, uh, it might be useful to talk a little bit about the size and the mechanics of the office. You know, your website lists you and three other architects as principals. And I'm wondering, you know, uh, how many are you and where? And also, do you have procedures in place by which you both expose the office to the realities of running the office and invite this team to think collectively about the difficult and the easy yes and no, right? The commissions that you will take on and those that are easy to say no to. Yeah, our office is, uh, I would say, small, uh, distributed, and I would say slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's small because we we are all together, never more than ten people, mm-hmm. and that's the way we are. It's not like we're that much flexible in growing and decreasing. It's really it's it's a bunch of people basically that. Uh, we we have nurture language sensitivity. There's new people coming. There's new people. There's people leaving. Uh, but somehow we are more more or less the same people for many many uh-huh. years. The second thing is that we're we're distributed. So and and saying that we're part of us are in Madrid. Part of us it's in New York. It's not all the complexity of this. There's now people that are living in tiny villages and we keep meeting every day or every other day uh, and they work whenever they want. And there's other people that very intermittent, like they're not permanently working in commissions of the office, but but rather doing it for mm-hmm. maybe a couple of months and then they have something else and they cannot commit and then they come back and then and there's a broader uh, network of people we work with mm-hmm. of many different fields uh, and and then the last thing is we're very slow and I, mm-hmm. I think this is kind of we, we have a, a slow pride let's say we're slow because we, we it takes a long time for us to, <laughs> to be part of the office uh, we just have People that work together for many years on long projects that are very mm-hmm. slow. Mm-hmm. And when I say slow, it's because we do research, we try to find the right language, we and and we combine projects of different medium into one project. So for instance, the, the installation that you mentioned for Venice is very related to the school, uh, the Regis School. And it, it's part of a series of performances that we'd like to consolidate in one that started with being silica and a series of pieces on ultra clear glass. So, so it's kind of a body of work that it's all interrelated. And the work of the Rambla Climate House, it's connected to an exhibition we did in LA on water and the project that we did in, in the PS1 Cosmo. Mm-hmm. So, and, 
and pretty much it's the same people over years, over periods of 10 years, discussing, working. Uh, and that's kind of a formula that we never invite, in, in, invented. We just ended up there and it works for us. I mean, uh, you suggested in an older interview with, with Nicholas Hirsch that in your office, architecture is understood as a trajectory. And you know, I like this description um, as a process of producing effects in an existing situation. Uh, and so that makes architecture a kind of a long performance of sorts, which works with, with your description just now. Uh, and that sometimes ends with a building or transformations to the building or other things, right? So um, I thought we could talk a little bit about, more generally, about the implications of this procedural conception of architecture for the role of the architect. Uh, but then also specifically, what does it mean for how does it manifest in the procedures of the office? Which yeah. I think you already started kind of uh, yeah, building up. Yeah, that's a great question. Us. I think uh, we lost so much, architecture lost so much by reducing the spectrum of our reading of what the building is. Mm -hmm. I, I claim buildings, I love buildings, but buildings are very complex entities. Mm -hmm. They're entities that have a very complex lifespan that start as air and mining and geology and many forms of life and go back to that all the time that are made of ideas and performances and that are made of associations and alliances and controversies and conflicts and activisms. Uh, and ultimately, they're not sipped up. They are nodes of exchange and flows. And it's impossible to distinguish where bodies start and where buildings start. And, and, and so architecture has been the art of narrowing all this complexity into a stupidity for many years. It was like, okay, let's reduce all this complexity to an instant photograph and let's pretend that that's the complexity of architecture. Or let's pretend that the complexity of construction is just a detail that you draw with black lines on white paper and that's it. And you don't ask where things come from, how labor operates, what is the, you know, like all these, like it's, it's really, and I think that we're in a moment where there's a huge dedication, collective dedication on understanding that, that we just have to release the, the narrowness and allow the, the broadness and the complexity and all these trajectories, complexities to be read and to be mobilized. Because the problem is not that by narrowing, I mean, it's impossible to make this complexity uh, disappear. It's just by narrowing the what we decide to, to put inside our threshold of perception, we just disengage with reality. Mm -hmm. We become delusional as, mm -hmm. as a field. So what I think it's we're, we're, we're living now, it's just the, the momentary and kind of very narrow in time period in which the description of what architecture was was that much simplified. We're witnessing now the way that these simplifications are removed and then all these complexities emerge. And I think it's a very exciting moment. For us, that's what we do in the office. And, and to do that, and we feel that we're doing that in cooperation with and kind of coalition, I would say, 
with many, many, many people, but also confronting other forms of practice that we clearly see as an impediment for architecture to, to, to be, let's say, gaining a voice or mobilizing its political capacity. And in order to do that, of course, we have to do many things. We have to do research. We have to do performances where we basically create alternative situations and, and allow others to be part of the, of, the, of the making of reality and many, many other things. And, and, but that's worth it because otherwise we would be operating in this very, very narrow inherited frame. I will ask you soon a question about what this means for architecture schools. But before we go there, um, uh, I did want to make it a little more specific. And so maybe uh, a question could be, how would you say that your definition of architecture as political and situations as or sites is always full, which again, you sort of described now, influences the thinking about what you want to engage as an office. So now positively, not negatively. And maybe we can go to, you know, the recent projects, Collegio, uh, Reggio or Babinyar or Ocean, the Ocean Pavilion. Yeah. And maybe like it basically registers, the, I'm assuming it registers differently in those projects, but I'm sort of wondering, you know, what maybe what are the kinds of conditions or what were the conditions in these particular projects that were of interest to you that you thought you could uh, shape in some particular way? A fundamental element that I found in most of our projects and that instigate us to, to work on them and to accept them, it's, and also people to want us to be part of it, is that they are in the making. They're undefined. And this is crucial for me. It's a crucial political, there's a crucial political dimension in allowing others to participate in a process when decisions and knowledge is not fixed yet. In projects like Colegio Regio or the Ocean Space or the Babinjar Museum of Memory and Oblivion, there was something that was common. That is that those that were commissioning these projects were figuring out what they were about. Mm -hmm. There was not kind of a description of what was needed that would be shared with us so that we could translate it into rooms. Mm -hmm. Nothing like that. There was a need to reinvent reality somehow. In, for instance, in the case of the ocean space, TBA21 was doing a big effort and keeps doing a great effort to bring together scientists, artists, and activists to change the way humans and human institutions relate to the ocean and to the very diverse forms of life that the ocean is composed of. That was not something, how to do a, a, an embassy or a center for that, to host that project was not easy. <laughs> and, and we're still struggling to find out together through experimentation what that means to operate ecologically in a way that we can question humans as much as we question the way humans uh, relate to the ocean. Mm -hmm. And the same in the Regio School. The Reyes School was an attempt of, or is an attempt of a group of teachers to think pedagogy differently and to think of architecture, not that much as a container, but as an actor that mm -hmm. gathers so much diversity as possible so that kids and faculty and guardians and parents and friends uh, can basically 
be exposed to a large number of situations so that their daily experience is an opportunity to learn and to learn together. And also as a way that is not confined and privatized, but rather by by connecting with what is shared with others and with public space and with the ecological networks they are part of. Mm-hmm. So again, like how do you, what is the way architecture can do that? So it's an open question. No one knows the answer to this, but we are willing to work together with others to experiment ways to approach that and to, and to do that, not as a, let's say, fixed design that brings certainty and close the questions, but rather we, we are accompanying others in, in experimenting how to do that. Mm-hmm. And the same with other projects. So I think like, you know, when I think the other day we had a, a meeting with some people that wanted us to work with them to do a space for interaction or whatever. And they were saying, oh, you don't have to think too much because we have it figured out. We just need a <laughs> box, you know, for this. We say, well, if you just need a box and you have all figured out, we're not going to be good, you know, here. Partners, you probably find, yeah. yeah, we're not going to be good partners. Probably you will find other architects that know how to deal with this. We, we want to work, you know, on situations that no one knows how to, how to deal with. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe we can, uh, I was going to go to something else, but I think we have to talk about how you talk to these people that... Uh, we might call clients if that if that's still possible in the context of architecture in this mode, right? Uh, but what is the nature of that sort of collaboration or conversation, or uh, what are the tools by which you get engaged in the way that seems appropriate for these questions? I think we have mainly one tool: time. <laughs> we just spend time listening. When I was in in the School of Architecture doing my master degree, I was always surprised that my teachers were, they always had answers for everything. You know, it's like, so I would say, but why do you know that fast what is needed here? Like, it's really it's much more complicated, you know. So, so then I, I had some friends from sociology from the School of Sociology and Anthropology. And they were all these uh, uh, followers of the 60s, Harold Garfinkel and the methodology. And they would spend years to know how the way you make your bed and you you Mm -hmm. put your pillow was the doorstep to dreams and nightmares. Mm -hmm. How by changing the way you would put your pillow on a bed you would actually change the way you access uh, your self-conscious. And I was fascinated by their ability to spend years just interviewing people, listening to people to say, well, I need to do this before I go to bed. I always leave my glass of water here. Uh, Otherwise, it's kind of annoying. I have to walk up. And if I walk up, you know, I basically, you know, like all these complexities of listening to people, how they queue. Harold Garfinkel was asking people, how do you queue in a post office? And by by listening to them, he could reconstruct all the power structures that people were assuming and as accepting and how they confronted them. So for me, time is the key in listening. Mm-hmm. So what, and, and looking at people, 
those are the three tools. So when, when we have a client, we, we have a protocol. We just ask them to tell us what is important for them. And often we ask them very basic things like, what, is, what was your day yesterday? Tell me all about your day yesterday. When, since you wake, woke up till the moment that you remember, like the, to the last thing that you can remember. So we would be listening, listening, listening and taking notes and then we would go back. And of course, when someone tells you one day in their life, in a specific, not an abstract kind of uh, idealized day, they tell you many things and you can ask them, so you, so you didn't have lunch, right? No, I didn't have lunch. Why not? You didn't, or what happened? Can you tell me more about this? And no, I never have lunch because I prefer to, you know, and then all this, and then you understand a little bit, you start to understand the complexity they are part of. For me, I mean, it's, it, it really makes projects very difficult to handle because you need time, you need patience, and you come up with weird ideas. But for me, it's been crucial. Mm-hmm. And I think that just listen. And looking is important because you have to, you have to look at people and, and you have to let them know by the way you look that you're... You're there to listen and you're expecting them to keep talking once they, they've given you the first version of the answer. And there's a second version, a third version, and the fourth is the wood one, right? But that for me is the, is the technology for, to do architecture in the way we do it. I like listening as technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've basically described elsewhere and now uh, here with me, kind of the architecture as a kind of intersectional and interscalar Um entity that includes care and embraces with nuance and understanding its own inevitable and possible political agency. So now I'd like to uh, figure out basically, are there, are there then key tools and expertise that you would cultivate in your office, uh, but also in pedagogical, so I'm going to lean towards your pedagogical leadership a little bit and ask what might all of this entail for architecture schools? Do we teach our students to listen or how do we sort of deal with this thing that you described as a kind of problem um, in a previous version of school that we experienced? I, I think that pedagogy is crucial. It's probably the space where architecture can really expand its agency most intensively now. I, I think that it's a place where responses can be slowed down and mm-hmm. where where we can engage with others not only intellectually but even in the daily performance of how a group operates so that realities can be reimagined prototype researched activated <laughs> and and I think that's that's what we do for me uh, school is not just the result of the exercises but everything the way people approach to it, the way people talk to each other, how we constitute our groups, what is the daily dynamics, what is the use of language or space or furniture. But it's a place for making, to make, where making alternatives and testing alternatives is possible in a radical way. And by radical, I don't mean like weird or necessarily, or uh, let's say flamboyant, but but more... Uh, careful, I would say, and, and more uh, ambitious politically. And, and I think that for me, that makes it 
necessary to understand that that the the technologies of architecture are very diverse. Uh, are of course those of drawings and and three D models and prototypes and models, but are also the way we move in a classroom, mm-hmm. the way we we listen to others, the way we we engage with people that are not in the room. So if I had to explain what is that 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 I think is important in 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 pedagogy now, in architectural pedagogy now, I would say it's an understanding of that we don't operate through abstraction, that we operate from inside, installed with our bodies in ecosystems that are previous to our arrival, and that everything that we do is changing them. I'm obviously a fan of of this notion. The thing that um, may be a sub-question, do you think we can slow down um, architecture and architectural pedagogy and fine-tune it to this kind of listening and being and still deliver on our accreditation? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a very good question because on the one hand, we operate in a context a context mm-hmm. that have many many implications and that that where changes can end up in undesired effects so i think that the, there's a need for certain principles of precaution to operate mm-hmm. so i would say that operating responsibly in a context where where implications could end up damaging or producing a damage that is not necessarily predictable mm-hmm. requires to do tentative approaches where the risk can be managed collectively and assumed collectively. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that should be an impediment, to be honest, to be responsible in in moving on the directions that we think we should be moving. Mm-hmm. So even if we are pre- we do that with certain precautionary principles, the direction in which we we decide to move collectively can be clarified, can be discussed, can be very open and public, and and I think there's certain uh, certain transformations that we're we're facing collectively. Not one school, all schools, hopefully, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. at one point. One is really moving away from um, the participation of architecture in systems of extraction to to dynamics and the acknowledgement of 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 a par- an emerging paradigm based on mutual care. This changes this changes everything, and I think that it's the politics that we need now cannot be an extension of the politics of the past. Architecture has a, cap- a kind of a, a, an automatic uh, uh, action of whenever there's something to address addressing it with the tools of modernity as a new problem that needs to be solved by expanding the modern way of doing politics. But I think that we're finding that there's issues that cannot be addressed through production and productivity and through the hegemony of uh, human uh, domains on others and human elites 
imposing action on other bodies and sexism and anthropocentrism and, you know, Western system and, <laughs> you know, colonialism, all these are interrelated uh, parts of the same paradigm based on extraction. And the problem is that we cannot just find uh, ways to, to address questions like climate crisis, uh, geopolitical tensions, the drop of biodiversity, in a growing inequality, but just mobilizing the tools of modernity. All these are symptoms of the need of a change of paradigm that is confronting colonialism and coloniality, that is confronting uh, uh, anthropocentrism, that is confronting racism, that is confronting the very notion of uh, resource and waste as something that is available and defined by human elites and imposed on others. When you put all this together, there's a need of a, a, a re-articulation of our world. And one that is sort of uh, radical in the way that replaces previous systems. But those other systems are sinking and cracking. And this is what emerged from their cracks. So I think it's inevitable that we, we work on this. If we can go back to off pollen again a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I have two questions out of uh, what you just said that might be useful, but they are slightly different directions. One is, and you maybe I'll t tell you both and you can pick the one you prefer. But one is really about how uh, and whether during the life of this uh, office you have changed ways in which you think about commissions. Has, has the kind of the... The, the growth and the kind of uh, capacity of the office influenced what you think you can and can and shouldn't should and shouldn't take on uh, on one end and the, on the other end I'm wondering about kind of how we how we uh, understand any kind of formal decisions or specifications in your work and this is really going back to the modernist project like what is the value of the modernist project that we have uh, ingested in schools at the very least like we may be in the process of it being questioned and cracked and and rethought uh, or abandoned um, and yet you know there are certain decisions and certain knowledges that come from that mode that are uh, still within the kind of uh, the material that you're working with if if nowhere else right so whichever yeah. one of these <laughs> Well, I think that the goal of our office is not to grow. Actually, we don't grow. We decrease in a way. So, uh, and that's very important for me. So I, I, I think it would be good to decrease progressively and each year be a little bit smaller, smaller, smaller and, uh, and do uh, smaller buildings in a way, but more intense and... And that's been definitely something that we learned. So our, our, um, our, we evolved in the way we, we related to commissions. Mm -hmm. Initially, we were very happy accepting any commission. We would be very, very willing to do everything. Uh, 
But we set certain rules that were good. When we opened the office, we would say that we would not take the phone after 2 p.m. So we'll have the afternoon, a little bit of a playground, uh, a space of certain autonomy for the office to, to discuss what we were doing without really being all the time trying to respond. Uh, and that was very productive for many years. At one point, it was not possible anymore because the, the proliferation of channels in which we would be connected to others would make it really mm-hmm. not working. We could not really cut everything. So, but, but that was great. And, and, uh, and I would say that the big evolution is that initially we were interrogating the intentions of the clients, let's say, or the representatives of the clients. We were saying, oh, this, this person has good intentions. That's amazing. Uh, let's do it, <laughs> you know, and the, and this, uh, but but then we we also learn on the way that is not people like a commission is not just people, mm-hmm. it's it's many many things. It's the frame in which you work. It's the uh, the way it's organized. It's the overall empowerment that those that come to you give to themselves or have, and and that that really changes everything. And the other thing is that to a large extent we produced or made or shaped our own clients after a while. So many of the of the clients that we had were either, or we didn't have clients often. We Often we were having ideas or working on something and then, then ended up knowing how to make it happen. Or we influenced others. We worked with someone on a project and we ended up developing a common culture and a common discussion from which other things would emerge. So it was very common for us. I mean, it's very common that we work with the same people for many years. For instance, we did a restaurant, uh, Ojalá Awareness Club, that was promoting people's exchange of ideas. That was really good in Malasaña and it changed totally the area. It became very, very activist area, uh, not only because of us, but because basically the, the owners managed to bring all these different groups. And uh, and then we, but the experience of doing an awareness club uh, in the 2000s was so exciting that we ended up doing many, many projects with the same people and we were learning together and shaping each other through the way. And, and I think that that's, that's crucial. So in a way, maybe why we kept working with the same people often, it's because we were educating each other and we were building something of an alliance that that was growing through conversation interaction for me that's the perfect situation in which there's really no commission it's just a, ne- a next step in a in an ongoing discussion but what do you think about the status of formal decisions or or yeah. um, offers and or a specification or both of those sort of the the kind of standard architectural uh, offering, where does it fit within this larger picture? Well, I think that there's consciousness for us. It's not something that it's driving decisions necessarily. It's not that we we do research and then we have some certainties and then we we use them to make decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more like consciousness is a layer in the making of reality. So, or in mm-hmm. the way we operate. So we do things. We engage with others. We experiment and and make some options emerge. In parallel, we are creating a, a 
kind of an awareness of what we're doing or finding ways to discuss them with others and we interrogate things and we do research on particular things. But but I would like if I would say that we we drive the processes through a linear consciousness and a sequence of consciousness building, decision making, mobilization of material reality or programmatic reality. Mm. That sequence is messy. All these things happen, but the relationship among them is messy. And and I, I think that's crucial because that's, in a way, architectural making is not a perf- is not a perfect version of reality. It's part of reality. And that messiness is needed. But it doesn't mean that we don't have tools to interrogate and to research. For us, forum is crucial uh, because it's, it's concreteness. Uh, and it's also a way to uh, any agreements and, and I would say contracts to many in many ways. Like when things are concrete and they are represented in a way that can be shared with others and end up being built, uh, it's, it's sort of a contract. And there's so much discussion and negotiation around forum. So forum allows for discussions to be detailed and, and specific and situated. So as things are very abstract, they don't need to land and be grounded and situated. But when, when you really, as you get closer to form, then stakes start to be more relevant for everyone and, and then cost implications in the long run then start being very concrete and therefore mm-hmm painful to others and and something they have to fight for and discuss and confront mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. so I love forum and for making because forum is contract it's the social contract of architecture and and as such there are certain preconceptions but I don't find it uh, to be a, a site for personal expression of course there's ways of doing that that stay through the process of negotiation uh, because probably are the least important parts of it. But important parts always change. And how could they not if they're affecting many stakeholders and many actors and many players and many activists and many victims and many, they all react to it. And and our job is like really our responsibility is to make sure that as many of these actors and not only those that have the power to be around the table, but but others that are they have they should have given the right to be around the table can contribute to that contract. So I can tell you many examples of that. But but for instance, the the the, the facade of Radio School mm-hmm. was a big process of negotiation and and the details of when could it be done? What was the sequence? For instance, something very simple. What would be placed first, the glass or the cork? Was mm-hmm. a big discussion, and that 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 had issues that came came from how f- rooms would be furniture, and and or labor issues, whether people could be uh, working on scaffoldings to place the glass. Uh, or they would be doing that through cranes, and uh, and you know, and all these details are details that are crucial for me. So, so the the form was actually the result of addressing all these questions 
together with other people that have other sensitivities and priorities. And of course, it's often difficult to track because there's asymmetry in the in the structures of power in these conversations. And also not all the information is, is transparent to everyone, right? So, but that's really politics. That's the making of politics. And politics are always a little bit opaque. They're always, because not because people want to be opaque, but because there's certain uncertainty and, and an awareness of how things operate and work. But what I can say is at the end, the building plays a key role and the form of the building plays a key role in stabilizing an agreement between many different parts. I think the question for architects is, what is our capacity to make those uh, contracts and negotiations participated by all the actors that are affected by, by this mm -hmm. building, or at least those that are most crucially affected by them? Mm -hmm. I have two big questions that I'm going to ask you and maybe a couple small ones, but you once told me um, challenging profoundly in that moment, my view of the way architecture was implicated in political economy, that not everything is capitalism. And I understood that to mean that sociality, intimacy, and aesthetic experiences can at least once in a while change the course of powerful forces that tend to negate and quantify them on a regular basis. And I'm sort of wondering if we can, we can talk about that a little bit more, if that's a correct <laughs> kind of reading of what you meant. I still tell my students about this every once in a while, because <laughs> I'm like, you know, Andres blew my mind <laughs> on this particular day. Yeah, I think that, yeah, it's, there's two questions here, or two, two responses that are very important to, to your question. On the one hand, I think we are inseparably entangled with capitalism. There's no way out. We cannot claim, let's say, virginity here or purity. We can. There's no safe space, even physically, where we're not affected by the, the effects of climate that were unchained through production mm -hmm. and the no, the the the, the notion of production and expansion and colonialism and, mm -hmm. and racialization. And, you know, like there's mm -hmm. no way out. We feel that in the temperature of the air, right? But also in the pollution in the air, we, it's in our lungs. We are capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, physically, we have particles of plastic in our lungs. It's, there's no way out. We're that and we're sort of entangled with this ecosystem of guilt as much of victims and also, mm -hmm. to a certain extent, exploitation. But that doesn't mean that, that's, that the spectrum of the possible that's not contain non-capitalistic ways of doing things and gradients of capitalism. I think we have to resist to the very notion of imagining a world driven only by economic uh, analysis. We have to, to resist to claiming that there's no way out of growth or production as the leading notion uh, uh, running societies and ecosystems. And, and that, that resistance is not only a claim, but also a deep enactment of the alternative. 
And when we look, it's too that in our lives, there's so many things that cannot be reduced and translated into the logics of, uh, of growth, expansion, productivity, exploitation, extraction. There's so many generosities in the daily life that cannot be explained through capitalism. But also there's other systems. There are systems of exchange, systems of systems of sharing, systems of economies of mutual care that do not respond to financial models and that do not. And we see them all everywhere, everywhere. There's non-capitalism uh, everywhere. But of course, not pure, not, in, not disentangled with uh, forces of capitalism, free trade, you know, like all this. On the other hand, I must say that capitalism is cracking everywhere, everywhere. The very ideology of liberalism doesn't work. It never worked. It never worked. Like the idea of a free uh, flow and circulation of people and woods was never true. Bodies were uh, demobilized, were actually retained and immobilized. Uh, matters, borders were protected. Uh, you know, so so neoliberalism never worked. Capitalism, advanced capitalism, work failing through cracks and through failure. And I think that, those are the places where, where alternatives are growing. You know, maybe we could um, end, or this my last question could be about uh, something that we spoke, uh, spoke about before, which is, and you've really kind of already uh, put it on the table today, but you spoke about the contemporary activist and dissident mandate for architecture and architects. Um, and that sounded like a form of practice that necessarily implies types of material, spatial, and technological dissidence. And I thought it would be useful to expand on that uh, for a moment and then add whatever else you think we should add on the record. Definitely. If I walk from my home in Carroll Gardens to Columbia, as I did today, uh, there's two ways of doing it. If I want to do it in a, let's say, in the way that many people aspirationally think they should do it, I would be moving from an air-conditioned lobby to an air-conditioned car. Uh, I would be maybe stopping at the you know, cafe where a corporate <laughs> coffee would be poured into a plastic uh, a container, uh, disposable by people that were precariously hired. Uh, and then I would, you know, like, like basically we would interrogate every single uh, step and could be a very narrow spectrum of what is possible and in most cases design wrongly <laughs> right and in every single thing wrongly designed mm -hmm. uh, the economies it was mobilizing the material world the air conditioning the you know whatever you looked at even aesthetically it could be not good the car would be <laughs> 
black <laughs> and the, <laughs> you know like not really exciting as a design and the and the the graphic design of the cafe would be really reductive and you know like nothing good but that's kind of a tendency and often when people think of an architecturalized world they think of a kind of that on asteroids you know like oh you go super super comfortable uh, life uh, served by others and you know stylist as this kind of succession right, succession you have that like if you follow the succession people that's it but I think that there's an alternative to that and there's many many like there's a huge uh, space and terrain of alternatives where there's other ways of working there's other ways to make coffee there's other graphic designs there's ways to move around that are different that there's no that there's not necessarily cars, there's kind of vehicles that, you know, are much more exciting than, then, you know, and, and, and that is what design can provide and what we desire and we can make desirable. Uh, so when, when I talk of architecture to necessarily be in dissident to architecture itself, like any relevant practice is a form of dissidence. Uh, because I believe that, that a, a kind of initial move to be an architect now is to really break the narrowness and and kind of make it possible for a much broader realm of possibilities uh, to to be enacted on a daily basis and to be the elements that that connect us with others and that shape our collectiveness and our togetherness and I think that that's that's a fundamental moment of uh, kind of professional definition I think that being an architect now, being a relevant architect, is being a dissident to the narrowness, the inherited narrowness of architectural practices. And I think that's what also unites all the exciting people working in architecture now. Somehow they all have to go through the process of breaking the narrow walls in which uh, architecture is often confined. I think that's a perfect place to end. It, it absolutely closes the loop with your opening set of statements. <laughs> And so thank you, Andres. Thank you for talking to me today. And listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of I Would Prefer Not To. 